Okay. So now I am recording, so we can call this uh, a podcast anytime you feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then we'll start because I have the same first question every time anyway. So, you know, uh, okay. who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Daniel Jalcut, as people probably know by the uh, description on the podcast by the time they hear this. But uh, I run a little software company uh, in the U.S. called Red Sweater Software. And my main product is a Mac app called MarsEdit, which is a desktop app for editing your blog posts. And it makes it real, real nice and easy to write blog posts on a Mac, kind of like you would write an email uh, message in, in mail.app or something. And style it up the way you like it and send it up to your blog and you never have to go log into the web, the web page to, uh, to write your posts. See, okay, we're going to go back to um, uh, the app, but when you say you run a small software company, it's, ba- it's mm. you're a one-man band as far as I get it, right? Or not? That is true. Uh, I think I say small software company in part because I, have, I haven't set a limit that it will always be just me. Um, mm-hmm. So I sort of think of my company as bigger than me even though for years and years and years it has essentially just been me. I mean, I hire people for things that I'm not good at, like um, you know, designing icons and things like that. But um, I would love to be in a position where you know, it could be more than just me uh, at some point. So I, I like to think of – it helps me, I think, uh, psychologically to think of the, um, of the entity as more than, than me. Uh, sort of, sort of relatable to a podcast, right? Like uh, a podcast is a branded thing, and it helps a lot to have your own personality invested in it. But um, you know, like here in the U.S., we have a bunch of uh, you know radio, we have uh, public radio shows. You probably have similar shows all all around the world, but it's shows like Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And the show would not be what it is without Terry Gross, but it's still its own unique thing with its own personality. So I like to think about my company, Red Sweater, the same way. It has its personality um, and it has an identity of its own. So um, I really speak about it abstractly sometimes to help reinforce that to myself and to other people. Oh, nice. Because I, I guess the psychological thing is the most important part, right? Because at some point, if if you are gonna expand, like you'll you'll just be set, <laughs> you know, in your head, you're you're set already, basically. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 it makes it will still be a huge step if I hire employees, but um, you know, you can you can also relate it to like somebody running a small cafe, and of course, at the beginning, it might just be one person, maybe one person, maybe husband and wife. Uh, but they're still not they're still going to call it um you know a a business right they're not going to say it's just this one person cafe that i run right (laughs) (laughs) so i run this one person cafe (laughs) yeah okay no no, but like when you said you hire people for the design stuff and you know how, how early like when you started the company how early did you get like did you get a feel for the stuff you actually know how to do and the stuff you had to outsource, I guess, you know? Was that ever a problem or were you, like, from the start, like, I know how to do this and then, okay, for the design stuff, I'm just going to get somebody? Or are there some Daniel Jalkett icons somewhere where 
you know, <laughs> your, your, your artistic visions are realized. Yeah. Oh, there are. They are. There are, and they have been slowly eradicated over the years. But there, <laughs> there probably are some lingering uh, examples of that if you look hard enough. Um, but I think a lot of us who get into software development um, have an attitude of I can do anything. It's kind of what is so appealing about software. You know, unlike uh, you can have the dream of building a car, but realistically, you're not going to be able to, you know, invent and assemble your own motor and, you know, go manufacture the tires yourself. And um, there's something kind of like really uh, appealing about software that you more or less can do absolutely everything from top to bottom if you feel like it, which isn't to say you shouldn't reuse parts when you can. You should use open source software if it makes sense. Um, but there's this attitude, I think, that a lot of us have, which is if I can imagine it, I can make it. And uh, unfortunately, most of us imagine <laughs> icons that look good and then we make <laughs> icons that look bad. Um so I think, yes, it used to be when I was just getting started with this, I, I thought I should do everything myself in part because I thought I could do, quote unquote, a good enough job. But also, um, you know, when you're getting started, every, every penny is, is important. You don't want to spend money because you don't, you're not even sure you're going to make $5, let alone, you know, make back the... Yeah, you know, to have like a professional application icon designed can cost a thousand dollars or more, and um, to have the faith that you're going to make that money back is really hard when you're getting started. So I can, it's a gradual thing. I think you know, some people are good at it. They go jump into the game and they realize from day one that they should delegate to other people who are better at them at things than them. Um, but it's really been more of a pra- pragmatic. Uh, cycle for me to go from feeling like I can or should do everything myself to gradually trying to uh, relax into letting other people help when they are more suited to the job. Yeah, okay. When you mentioned it was daunting at first, like that, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Because, like, when, when, when did you start on your own? Like, what was the year? Um, well, the, the year that I actually. Um, it's a little bit fuzzy because I started the company Red Sweater before I quit my job and I was working at Apple at the time. Uh, and this was around 1999 when I started the company officially. Um, and then I quit Apple in 2002. And you might think then, oh, so from 2002 you were running Red Sweater. True, but I was also going back to school at that time. So I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really doing the business full time. And it wasn't until around 2005, 2006 that I started thinking, I'm going to make Red Sweater into a full-time business. And before that, I think it had always been this idea that, oh, I, I want to make stuff every once in a while and put it out there. But I'm, I never envisioned Red Sweater as a full-time job. And it wasn't until right. 2005 or 2006 I said, you know what, either I'm going to go get another job, like go back to Apple – Go to Google, go to some other company, or I'm going to just see if I can make this this business work for myself. 
Yeah, and that sort of blows my mind because yeah, that's that's the year I figured because I when I did the research it was like 2005 because that's before the whole mobile thing happened and you know it's a desktop app I get that but like yeah how, like how crazy were you to think like <laughs> you know like to 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 just envision that like a a one-man desktop desktop app would work because like now people just take it for granted that people have made money with apps like with mobile apps within the app store for ios but i think like on the desktop it was different it was actually like huge teams you know doing the, like desktop yeah. apps but there weren't that many like one-man bands doing stuff so like, yeah well there were there weren't that many but there ha there is a history of very small teams on the mac having success uh, there were examples that I looked up to, like Panic, which is a quite a large company now. I mean, relatively large. They have, I think, mm -hmm. 30 or more people working for them. But, you know, Panic, you know, famous makers of apps like Coda and Transmit, they started as a two-person company. And, um, you know, there's uh, other examples were already around at the time, like Will Shipley with uh, with uh, Delicious Library. Um, it wasn't exactly just him, but it was him and a design partner and, you know, another two person company. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot harder at that time. I think what you're getting at is the crazy part as you're describing it is doing all of this without an app store to support yeah. the infrastructure. And yes, that is true. There was a lot of extra work back then. Um, those of us who still sell inside and outside the app store, we still have all that extra work, but fortunately, you know, we've had a long time to, to put it together. Um, but yeah, back in those days, it was not uncommon to use a third-party um, payment system like Accelerate or Kagi or something. Um, and over time, things got easier in that respect. Like you could use PayPal and other services that were a little bit less expensive, Um but you're right. I mean, it's it's a uh, everything we we look at it from a different perspective these days. Um, people getting into the the you know so-called one-man software business, um, they look at it as I can just make an app and ship it up to Apple and sit kick back and wait for the money to come in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the the interesting thing is that that is not true, and. Those of us who have been around long enough to know all the other work that you have to put into it, I think, are less surprised when we realize, when, when the money doesn't just come in. Um, and it's because, yes, the App Store is great. It supports a lot of infrastructure that we then don't have to do. But uh, And it does bring new customers who are just searching for stuff in the App Store. But it doesn't do anything to sort of help get the buzz out there to for for most people you know you might get featured in the app store but you still have to do a lot of work you have to go out there you have to engage with customers write blog posts get on twitter get people talking about your software uh and i'm not like a, an expert at this but i understand that it's necessary and so i think that some people who come into the app business these days they just assume that they can do one thing that they do, you know, getting back to that whole whole idea of like, do, you know, do what you do well and let other people do other stuff. Some people just assume the app store now means you can just be a programmer and make a bunch of money. And uh, it's some people are going to get lucky and that's going to be true. But for the most part, it still requires you to either be 
competent as all these different things, like a, a marketer or a you know customer support agent, uh, all these different jobs that go into you know you're making a business you, you somebody has to do your bookkeeping somebody has to file your taxes all this stuff and usually it's just the one person but um there's a lot more to it than just the app store so even even today when it is i grant you a lot easier to get into this business and really make a go at it it's still a very complicated thing to do yeah and then there's the whole you know the whole startup vc culture that kind of distorts all of it, I think, because there's a bunch of businesses that don't really need to make money at the start, even if it's just a small team. So I'm, yeah. I'm wondering how you see that whole world since you sort of bypassed it completely with your stuff, you know? You just, you know, you left Apple, okay, and then there was school, and then there was Red Sweater Software, and you kind of, you know, got it off the ground. There was no, you know, VC backing and, you know, three years before you had to be profitable and all of that stuff. So I'm just wondering what you're like. I've never heard you really talk about that whole other side of, you know, that whole Californian thing. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I, I really am biased against venture capital and, um, I, relate to people who have benefited from it. I think it's I don't want to I don't want to um judge anybody who has benefited from it. There are many companies who have probably only come to exist and only succeeded because of some amount of venture capital. Um but I I see the negatives as outweighing those positives in general. So for example, I don't I don't like the idea of um you know the whole point for me of of being a small business is to have control over what the business does, how it does it, how it's perceived, how it projects its image to the public. And if you take venture capital, you might be able to preserve that control or you might not. Um, and I always liked the thirty seven signals approach to this philosophically, which is that they are strong um, supporters of the idea that businesses should make money from day one, essentially. Um, they have this whole series of, uh, of, uh, you know, blog posts called, I think they call it bootstrapped and bootstrapped and proud or something bootstrapped and profitable, something like that. And, uh, they, they celebrate that idea that essentially you don't have to have a, a bogus business model. You don't have to just start your company in the hopes that somebody will buy you out or that you will, you know, um, find some way to make a bunch of money later. Um, and I like that idea. I like the idea that you come up with an idea and you charge people for it and they support what you are doing and you give back to them. And this cycle, this, you know, classic business approach. And I think too many people, because of the venture capital, are just going at the business, the whole idea of businesses, um, with an with an approach that is philosophically different from what I like to see in businesses. Yeah, and I think it just the whole, you know, I'm going to build something and then exit. I think that thing just makes everything else distorted. I think that's the biggest negative for me when I look at stuff like that. It's just people doing stuff so they can sell it off later, basically. Right. And I, yeah, and that's that goes against the one-man cafe, I guess. <laughs> because if you have that one-man cafe, you're supposed to, you know, take care of that cafe for a while. At least that's the plan, right? Right. And you can, and I mean, a one-man cafe could become, you know, five different locations in town. 
Uh, it could be um, a cafe that turns into a movie theater, and you know, one of the cafes is a bookstore. It can get it can get quite big and complicated, and still be your own vision of what a business should be. Right? It doesn't have to be limited just because you are in control. Um, but I do think there's, and again, I, I want to just like stress that that just because I see it this way, it doesn't mean that those venture capital businesses are wrong. They're just they're just going at things in a different way than I want to go at them. And it, it's it's kind of like um, it's kind of like uh, let's say let's say that um, somebody's starting a beer business. Right, you can go at it with the attitude that you want to sell the kind of beer that every single person in the country buys and drinks, um, and those beers don't usually have a very good taste or they're not very good quality. <laughs> yeah, right. You're talking to a beer guy, so yeah, I know okay, exactly right. What you mean. <laughs> so, so you can go into the business with that idea from the start, and if that is your idea from the start to make the biggest brand of beer mass marketed beer you're going to need venture capital for that because you need to have the biggest factories and you need to have like instantly from day 1 you need to have a bunch of money so you can pay all of the bars to like you know feature your beer and like basically force it down people's throats <laughs> <laughs> and then on the other hand you could start a beer company and say what matters to me most is to make the best possible beer and i know that if I make the best possible beer and I open up a small shop or I open up a small brewery, people who care about good beer will come and buy my beer. And that will enable me to keep making good beer and keep figuring out how to make beer even better. And that's just a different approach. And everybody who is trying to do the venture capital approach is trying to make mass market stuff, right? They're trying to make the stuff that you need a lot of money to make because it needs to be big and it needs to serve everybody. Um, and the good news for anybody who who likes to make quality things is these days you don't need to make mass market stuff, right? You can make niche market stuff. You can make high quality stuff, and yeah, you can even you, you can sell it on the app store for one thing. You can sell it directly, but you can. You can do it these days in a way that you couldn't really reasonably. Like you, you were you were kind of surprised that I did it in uh, you know 2005, but mm. you know people were doing it in 1995, 1985, um, but nobody was doing it. You know, independent software in 1975. I don't think <laughs> you know. So things <laughs> have changed, um, and it's possible now, and it's getting more and more possible to do it. Um, and if you have that opportunity and if you're somebody who cares about what you make, why? I mean, if you were the best beer maker in the world, you wouldn't make Budweiser, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, you just wouldn't do it. Yeah, but the the reason I use the word crazy for the like when you started out is I think it's even like in America like your line of thinking that makes total sense like if you, but if you live over here especially like in a small country like Slovenia you know 
Like, um, like back then, I just did not know how that would have worked. Like, we have guys that have apps in the App Store, some pretty popular ones and stuff now, right? But like, I, I, I'm not sure there's any like proper Mac apps that came from Slovenia, you know, back then. So to me, it just seems like that chasm was even bigger, you know? And that's yeah. why it's so mind boggling to me. And like, when you say, you know, the, it's still a lot of work with the App Store, I'm telling you, like, for the rest of the world, if you like, exclude america i think the app store is a way bigger deal over here than it, than it's uh oh, uh-huh okay you know i i, I think that, that's just the feeling i have because there was literally no outlet you know before right basically and now there is one that kind of really does span the globe as you know used as that that phrasing is but it actually does you know and well it, i think yeah i think you're onto something because i do think back in you know in the older older years um, when I talked about companies like Panic and uh, you know Delicious Library, um, we did those companies are American companies and they did benefit, I'm sure, from being in a country where there's a huge market already. Um, and I, I know there have been in the past problems for um, international, you know, just the payments, right? So I could imagine yeah. if you're in Slovenia and you want to take money from somebody in the United States. That's not trivial, maybe, or it wasn't trivial. Um, like I, you know, probably these days you can you can get a PayPal account, but uh, I yeah, don't even know if that's well, true. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. But you know, yeah. like, even with PayPal, I think like a couple of years ago we were able to withdraw money. Before that, we couldn't. Uh, you could pay stuff, like, okay, pay for stuff. <laughs> but if you had a business and you know you got money up there, you really couldn't withdraw it. Like there was oh my no gosh. way. Yeah, I think that happened. I think I'm um, like I'll, I'll say four years ago, but still, you know, it's yeah, it's still wow. like 2009, I guess. So, yeah, it's it's a little different over here. That that's one of the things I wanted to ask you as well, because um, like uh, like even for your app, right? Like how. Do you have any idea of like the kind of customers you get or how that has changed during the years, right? Because I think it's like, a, I guess there's bloggers in every language. So, you know, they're in every yes. country. So has that changed or it's, I'm guessing it's still mostly Americans, but you know, has there been? Yeah, well, there's one really interesting thing that I've noticed. Um, I have to be honest, I haven't paid i haven't measured it carefully over the years and also i have not yet um localized mars edit to any other language or culture besides mm-hmm. english american english so i think that there's a potential for more of a market there than i'm taking advantage of but that said there has always been a pretty significant uh international sales for Mars Edit. You know, it's, it, I, w- I don't know the exact numbers, but it, I wouldn't be surprised if it's for years and years been, you know, half American, half everywhere else. Um, then something happened over the past couple of years. I noticed, especially with the App Store, something happened to make Mars Edit extremely popular in Japan <laughs> okay. on the Mac App Store. <laughs> Um, and I, and I don't mean, I don't mean like extremely popular. Like it's not like the biggest app on the app store in Japan. It's just, it's extremely popular compared to all my other countries. <laughs> so, um, so these days I have a situation where it's not uncommon for Japan to be the biggest sales of the day. Um, and that's really unusual considering I don't, I haven't even localized the app for Japanese. Um, so I don't know what to make of it, really. But you're right. There is an international market, and I have 
I do think that's probably an example where the app store is opening it up and making it easier for um, for people to to buy the software and to feel confident in buying the software. Because you know, let's say you are a Japanese blogger, and even if you speak some English, you you might be willing to buy the app from the app store because at least all the app store description, you know, not the descriptions even actually for the app, but at least the, you know, at least Apple's part of the app store is all translated to Japanese. And you can see, you know, what am I going to pay? It's all in yen. Um, whereas going directly through my store, somebody in Japan would have to read all English and then see us dollar signs and think, how am I going to pay for this? Is my credit card going to work? All this stuff. And, uh, do I trust this company (laughs) (laughs) red sweater in America? And, um, now they can just say, oh, I trust Apple. So Apple, I, I understand this is an English app, but I heard it's going to be good. And I trust Apple. I'm just going to buy it. And so that's something that's changed, I think. I think that Apple is helping to be a sort of international conduit for buyers to buy um, stuff from whatever country. But, you know, a lot of software does come from the U.S., so um, – those of us in the U.S., I think, are getting more sales to international buyers in part because of the apps. Yeah, I'm pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. And I think with the apps, it's um, even like it's even more prevalent on the international scale because there's none of those. You know, with the TV and the movies, you have all those rights questions and you know lawyers and stuff. And with the apps, it's they're kind of you know they're rooted in like uh, you know anybody can basically download it. So I think. Like, yeah. it must show up more because, you know, like the Slovene iTunes store, I mean, the movie selection in there is not what you would call, you know, plentiful. <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. it's not the same thing, right? But whereas any, like, uh, uh, even on iOS or on the Mac, if you go to the App Store, everything's pretty much there, you know. There's no real difference, basically. Yeah. And I think that must help, I guess, uh, for guys like you. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I guess that's just because... Well, that, that's actually, I, I mean, that's an example where I guess the software industry came about at a time that was later, so it doesn't have all those, like, old-fashioned music and and publishing restrictions. Yeah, I think that's a that's a um, really big deal. I, I, like, I, I know, like, that's why I get angry with, like, American podcasts, podcasters most of the time when they just don't mention that, like, the, the international angle. Like, it actually, that's really important because, you know, something like your app, you can just get it, you know. But like a, a CD from somebody in America because the label has a dispute with a label in Europe and then they don't put it on the app store or stuff like that. Like right. That happens all the time. <laughs> like, I think that just – Yeah, that's really frustrating. Yeah, it just gets underplayed. But yeah. Okay, just, just one more th- – yeah. Well, that's – that's, Go on. Oh, I was just going to say that's an example where like um, just getting out from under the publishing companies is a big deal because you know obviously with my software – the only company that could have an international licensing agreement like that would be Red Sweater itself. Um, and so you think of uh, music, music. a lot of musicians, they only have that problem because they have released their stuff through record labels. Um, and take somebody like Jonathan Colton, who releases all of his stuff himself, and he doesn't have that problem with anybody, I have to assume, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, if if he wants to sell his MP3 in Slovenia, then he can sell it because it's his. Uh, so that's one another example where it's just like um, getting 
getting that control, so to speak, not having the venture capitalists involved, you can do whatever you want with your stuff. Yeah, I guess it all ties into, I don't know. You see, but when you said, yeah, well, I don't blame the venture capitalist funds. But I think, I don't know, there's something inherently bad in there for me somehow. I can't really put my finger on it. But like guys like you and, you know, the independent people, I'm, I'm drawn toward more, uh, more towards those. So yeah. I don't know. I think I, I could almost go on record with saying that the VC stuff is bad, like <laughs> just in general. But yeah, I won't go as far as evil, but I'll just say it's like a, a yeah. it's worse in almost every way to the independent stuff, like almost every way. Because I do understand that there are some companies where you just couldn't do that company with you know that like uh, without yeah. the VC money. I do get that, but yeah, everything else is sort of you know semantics. I think it's just worse. Maybe I don't know. You see that? I yeah, I, t- I, t- I tend I tend to agree. I just don't want to. Um I don't want to presume to know exactly what everyone else is. Yeah, that, that's the thing. So, yeah, uh, but I tend to agree that I think I think let's put it this way: I think a, a great number of people who chose to take VC capital would have done just as well in the end if they had gone on their own and uh, either self-funded it or tried to fund it, you know, with small group of peers and kept control and keep. You know, there's something to be said for growing small, uh, growing slowly too, because it gives you time to kind of figure out what you're doing, right? Like, uh, like let, let's say you do start a new software company today, and you don't know how to do all the marketing and all that stuff. Well, you got time to figure it out. Uh, but if you start with a hundred million dollars or something, yeah. <laughs> then you don't you don't have time to figure that out because you got to be like doing everything on day one. Yeah. I guess, yeah. We see, we're going to keep circling around it, but I think, yeah, <laughs> I think at some point the VC stuff is, and the, fa- the fact is with the VC stuff, like 99% of those companies just fail and that money basically gets thrown right. away, you know, at some point. Cause like the 1% yeah. that actually do make it, maybe half of them are like decent companies and half of them are just waiting to exit. And with those odds, yeah, I, I think you're probably better off going independent, <laughs> I think. Just for for your own yeah. sanity, probably. I don't know. Because that, that seems like a hard way to do stuff to me. And even if somebody like... It's con- it, if yeah. somebody gives you that much money, I mean, the burden of that is like, I don't know. It's weird to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the complications is, that, is also that some people, they just don't have the personality to do what they want to do on their own. Um, so they either need to find other people to work with them for free while you know while they're figuring this out or that's the other, that's what, that's one of the reasons I don't want to be too judgmental because some people will not get the thing done unless somebody else validates it with money or you know a promise of money uh, some people really need a job some people really need venture capital uh, or they're just not going to get it done so it's easy for me to say oh you shouldn't have done you shouldn't have taken that million dollars you should have just run with the idea and like sweat and starved and gotten the job done and then sell it but that's my personality my personality is that i can get something done without uh without somebody else saying i'm going to give you a million dollars first but some people aren't like that and 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 not everybody who needs that kind of support is a bad you know product maker some people 
some people need that kind of support and they make great stuff. So when you have that kind of situation, I think that's where it's like, okay, you know, you, you, I guess you need the venture capital if that's yeah, what it takes to get you yeah, to get the job done. There's plenty of example of, scum, of companies like that, but that's just such a tiny drop in that whole ocean that. Yes, yeah. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about Mars Edit for a minute because, um, with the whole, like when you started, uh, um, uh, your company and you know start you took over the development of Mars Edit. Like blogging was pretty big back. Like there was this boom, right? And then it sort of settled down, and now it's like something normal where people just write, right? <laughs> but how have you seen that evolution going? You know, because like there's places like Squarespace now where you can just set up a site in like 17 seconds, yeah. you know, and not really you know bother with it and stuff. But how have you seen that whole you know the CMS evolution going? From your end, you know, as the guy that um, needs to kind of tap into. Well, it's funny because, yeah, well, it's funny because you said that, you said, you know, back then blogging was really big. And that's an impression that a lot of people have um, because blogging was sort of at the forefront. It was like it, people were just getting into blogging and it made it feel bigger because um, people were talking a lot about it. There were services like Technorati to like, you know, rank the blogs and there were all these different, uh, you know, it, it was much more common for without, without services like Twitter, you, if you kept up with somebody's work, you kept up with them through their blog. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the mistake people make these days is to assume that blogging is in decline or that it's not as popular as it was. And when in reality, it's like, um, it's, I think, I think it must be much, much, much bigger than it ever was. Um, far, far, far more people have blogs than ever did before. And it's kind of like, um, you know, telephones. Telephones are much bigger than they've ever been before, <laughs> right? Um, everybody has a telephone, a cell phone or a landline, something, you know? And yet, um, tele- the idea of telephone is not an exciting new idea. Yeah, it's now. not shiny anymore, basically. Um, <laughs> it's not shiny. But if you said, remember when telephones were big? Well, they were big like when, um, you know, when the first telephone call was made and only two people <laughs> had them, right? That was, that, was, that was when it was like, oh, my God, there is this new thing. It's called a telephone. And you can call, you know, across the Atlantic with, you know, uh, a phone. And, uh, and then maybe 10 people had them. And they were, they were just huge. And, and maybe 1,000 people had them. Probably when telephones were the most exciting the most new thing probably only 10,000 people had them mm-hmm. right and it was like telephone is the way of the future telephones are going to be so huge and now they are so huge everybody has them and and i think it's sort of similar with blogging that um everybody's blogging now and yes some of that blogging is uh, on platforms that we, you know, only reluctantly kind of call blogging, like tw- like Twitter, you might call it microblogging. Um, but the idea of personal, permanent, like archived expressions on the web is 
has become and, – and you can even say – I would say that the stuff that you do on Facebook, the stuff that people do on Facebook or Google Plus is also blogging. Uh, I don't happen to support those platforms with Mars Edit. I do sort of stick to a more traditional definition of blogging for the stuff that I support so far anyway. But blogging, I, I, I sort of take – I sort of take um, – I sort of take when people say like blogging is in decline, I think you're just not noticing that everything around us is blogging now. Um, like Tumblr itself is probably, you know, 10 times as many blogs as there were in the whole world when blogging yeah. was quote unquote big. And uh, so it's an interesting time. I think. Um, it's been, you know, you mentioned like what my perspective on how the different CMSs and stuff have evolved. Um, it's been a little bit disappointing for me to to see the ways the missed opportunity for, um, you know, supporting APIs better. Obviously, yeah. I care about that as a developer of a third party app. Uh, it's been disappointing to see Squarespace drop their API for their latest version. Um, some companies like Tumblr have had ups and downs with their their API support. You know, I was really optimistic that APIs were going in the right direction with um with things like Flickr. Um Flickr is unusual in that its API is extremely extensive and I believe that Flickr's site itself is implemented with mm-hmm. their API. So, um that's a really great way to approach making an API is can we build our own product with the API? Uh, and that's not the way most people approach it. The way most CMSs approach the API as, oh, we forgot that there might be some use for third-party apps to connect to this. Let's tack something on. And uh, that's the way it is with most services, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, some of the services still make a good effort to support a lot of stuff. So there's still a good. Um, there's still a lot of good stuff I can do with with Mars Edit, but I wish um, that the the industry had more of a, a of a, a attitude of API being um, first and foremost in the yeah, design. But why, why do you think that is? Because I, I just that's that's why I ask you about the evolution of it. Because I think at the beginning, like every CMS, kind of had that mindset that okay, like we can't really do everything like as good so we need to have a like a proper api that third party apps can sort of you know fill in the gaps but that I, at least that's been my uh, like that's how i see it like that has eroded slowly so I, i'm just wondering like why do you think that's that is so yeah basically um it's interesting here's 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 one angle too because it's not it's not just cmss obviously it's um things like mm-hmm. twitter uh have they've scaled back their support for Obviously, for certain uses of their API, they don't want to see full um, service apps using the API. Um, I think that one of the one of the sort of unfortunate byproducts of this whole mobile era is that we've got a very clear idea of the platforms that services that web services want to support. Uh, so we have very clear that we want to support the web itself, you know, a web browser. So a web browser-based interface to your service is important. Uh, then it's very clear that you want to support iPhone and very clear that you want to support Android. Um, and then probably you want to support Mac as well. But beyond that, um, 
I think it's gotten to the point where many companies feel that if they cover those bases, they don't need to support anything else. And I think historically, maybe it was a little bit more uncertain. Like people didn't know um, what kind of phone people would be using to try to connect, let's say. Uh, so in a way, I think it's sort of standardized enough that um, the companies the companies know that they can take on the task of building the apps themselves for this limited set of platforms. So I think that's what happened with um, with Twitter. They said, hmm, it used to be important for us to have an API because all we had was a website. And then people made all these native apps that was, was really great because people could run apps on Linux or on Windows or on Mac or on, uh, you know, new systems like, oh, this iOS system that just came out. Uh, but then over time, now Twitter, I think, is taking the attitude that if it's an, if there's only a few platforms that matter, and those platforms, we will make the app. Uh, and I think other companies are starting to follow in the same sort of footsteps as that. And, and you see, even the blogging companies like Tumblr, they have their own app for iOS, probably for Android. Oh yeah, there's one for Android. Yeah. Uh, okay, and uh, I think it's a similar kind of approach where if if there were ten viable mobile platforms, then it might be more important for these companies to continue supporting an API, right? Because then they would see the value of having other companies uh, or uh, third parties. Yeah, help out. the field's so narrow now. But right? at, With the, yeah. yeah, it's it really is. And I think, you know, iOS is one part of that, but Android has really locked up the – it's like – for smartphones, it's either iOS or Android. Realistically, that's what it, that's what it's come down to right now. Maybe, maybe Windows will, maybe Microsoft will change that. But um, even if the, even if Microsoft makes it a one you know one more platform, um, that might not be enough for these companies to think it's valuable to support an API. Yeah. Okay. I'd never really thought about it that way because I just you know I. Like when I write for the magazine, I usually cover everything, so I just have it in my head. There's just still plenty of platforms left. But I guess if you're a company, you're just thinking about supporting stuff. Yeah, I guess those two are pretty much it. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and, and you can use the web. You can use the web platform as the fallback. So you say, I support iOS, Android, and if you happen to have some freaky <laughs> yeah. phone with a with a web browser, you can use yeah. the website. Yeah, okay, that's just depressing. <laughs> that's just sounds... <laughs> Let's talk about yeah, something else. <laughs> that just, yeah, that was a downer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I wanted to ask you about um, uh, your podcast because um, I'm a big fan of bit splitting, basically. Oh, yeah, thank yeah, you. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you decided to do seasons, I guess, with the last message. Yeah. So, so talk about that. Like, yeah. First, tell people what the bit splitting is, and then uh, we'll, we'll go into why you're at, at seasons now. So, yeah. Well, the idea with bit splitting was um, actually sort of inspired by one of these public radio shows I mentioned earlier called Fresh Air, which is an interview show here in the U.S. You can get the podcast, of course, anywhere in the world. Um, but it's uh, a woman from uh, Philadelphia, Terry Gross, and she invites people onto the show. And I just enjoy the way she inter interviews them. It's very um, pertinent to what they do, but it, but she also doesn't shy away from asking about, you know, slightly more personal things. Um, and I I noticed listening to a lot of uh, tech podcasts that I would hear interviews with people I really respect. 
Um, but I would hear sort of the same questions and the same answers again and again. And it would be like, um, you know, so let's say it's John Gruber. What made you decide to uh, start Daring Fireball? And, you know, what, what do you, what do you, how do you feel about the way Markdown has turned out? And um, what do you think about uh, Internet jackasses? And, and w- tell me more about, uh, you know, what you think about the iPhone. And I thought, nobody's ever asking these people, like, where did you go to elementary school? Where did you go to grade school? You know, well, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Did you always want to be a, a writer? Um, and I never actually got, I haven't gotten around to interviewing John Gruber particularly yet, but I've gotten the chance to interview for this first season, 10 people. And I tried to take that, that approach to say, not just what do you do now, but where, where did you come from? Why did you get on this course to think about things and see the world the way that you do? And, um, that's been a challenge for me because I feel like there's been this, standard this personal standard i have you know other people listen to the show and i think if they're just getting into it they just think oh this is just an interview show he just sits down and asks some random questions and i'm really more tortured about it than that i'm really trying it's true some of it is just spontaneous but a lot of it is trying to make a point of getting into the past so that's been the uh the sort of basis for the show and um I did it for 10 episodes uh, religiously every other week. And um, it was important to me to stick to a, to a schedule. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I just thought that it was a good idea. But that is a good idea. The, I'm the same way, right? I am. Yeah. So I completely understand that. So I'll get started. <laughs> well, but so anyway, I, I decided to stick to a schedule, but it turns out it's also just, a, as you know, it's a lot of work. Um, and you can make it less. There are ways to make a podcast less work. Um, you can record straight to you know to the podcast without doing any editing, and just you know convert to MP3 and upload it. That's less work than if you do even a little bit of editing. Yeah. Um, and the, the the problem is the editing can get really. <laughs> really <laughs> intense if you decide to do a little bit you might end up deciding to do a lot yeah um so my take on it was really from in a lot of ways it's a it's a kind of a premium i like to think of it as a premium podcast in that it's a podcast where i pick a guest i do research i do some time it sounds like you've done some research here too so kudos to you uh <laughs> but uh you know that takes time yeah. and it's not it's not just call you know a lot of people listen to a podcast episode and it's an hour long and they think oh, okay this podcast was an hour long so it probably took them about an hour and five minutes to do this and reality is for a lot of podcasts it's getting up on like an hour podcast probably took up to and it's in, in my case with bit splitting, I think there were times that it probably took eight hours to do all of it, you know. Yeah. And you add that up. Uh, if I was doing that every other week, I was spending eight hours every other week, you know, up to eight hours maybe. Um, so that's like ten uh, percent of my work days. Uh, 
on this thing. And it, granted, I was making money from it. I'm selling ads. But I started realizing I can't be – I'm a software developer. I'm not a podcaster. <laughs> um, and you know, I could decide maybe. I could say I'm going to stop being a, pod, a software developer. I'll start being a podcaster and then, hey, I'll make – I'll make five bit splittings a week, but, uh, that's not what I do. So I make software. That's my main job. And I liked the idea of bit splitting existing in the world, but, um, it turned out that trying to do it every other week forever was going to be a bad idea. It was going to, and, and, and it's also just taxing, uh, psychologically or psychologically, emotionally. It's a lot of work. Uh, being concerned about how people are going to react to the show, um, being concerned that I, I, I took a lot of care that I wouldn't make anybody sound dumb, you know. <laughs> so, and it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard with yeah, my with guests, your guests, but that wasn't really a problem. <laughs> no, but for example, if somebody messed up and said something that they regretted, that's one of the things I would always offer to edit out. Um, and it's not necessarily something that makes you sound dumb, but you know, if you're in an interview and you say, "Oh, this one boss I had was a real jerk," and then you realize, "Oh, that boss might listen to this show," um, then it's just a matter of uh, tact to edit that out. Um, yeah, that happened. So anyway, that happened to a guest of mine like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Okay, so you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of work that goes into it, and a lot of uh, a lot of there's a lot of labor, and there's a lot of emotional investment. And I just realized I can't do that every other week. So um, it's been great taking a break. I've been on a break now for about two months, actually. Um, and I'm a little bit worried that it's too good being on the break. <laughs> But I do, uh, I do hope to, to do, as you said, a sort of seasons approach. And I would envision the next season I do doing a lot more work up front so that I'm not, um, not jumping from week to week, you know, feeling that stress of getting another episode out. Yeah, because then you can do the uh, research, like for three guests in a row and stuff. That, yeah. That's right. And, and record three guests in, in, uh, in a day, even maybe. Don't then, do that. You know, don't, don't do that. Don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't. Just don't. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Just yeah. Don't. I've done that on two occasions. I've actually did like three interviews and you just die at the end of the day. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll take your advice on that one then. But three interviews in three days. You yeah. That, you can do uh, that, that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, uh, the, 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 in a nutshell, the work of putting a podcast together that is, I mean, like I said, you can do a varying amount of work, but we have all heard podcasts that are the result of somebody not doing enough work. Yeah. And it's not good. It's bad. Uh, and I don't want to be embarrassed like that. And I don't want to waste anybody's time downloading the podcast even once and having it turn out that way. So um, it's basically uh, it's a lot more work than I, than I expected, and even you know I even have another podcast. I have uh, a regular weekly podcast with my friend Manton Reese uh, called Core Intuition, and it's it's also work, but it is you know work that we share. So um, I didn't really understand how hard it was going to be to do a whole show by myself, and it's a longer show, so it's longer editing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but I look forward to doing it again. I think I just need to get my energy back and get my excitement back uh, for for doing it. And um, and then we'll uh, probably I'll probably uh, 
I'll probably queue up at least like three or four before starting a season. Oh, awesome. If not, if not all 10, you know, maybe I'll just do all 10. That would take all the stress out. Um, yeah, I think that's not I a bad for- idea, probably. If you just get all 10, like have dates in, like, dates set for the interviews, just do the research and then you're just fine. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Man, I wish I could yeah. do stuff like that. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> my Slovene show is every week, right? And that's an insane, just an insane frequency. Yeah. I know. Oh, but that's got to be up to date, right? Because it's about the, is it about the news? No, no, no. It's an interview show. I do an interview a week. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I basically use you guys uh, for like uh, the weeks where I, I either don't have anybody. I just, you know, I, I put uh-huh. you guys into the Slovene feed with a delay, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah, cool. It's it's yeah. Every week, I don't know what what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I was gonna I was gonna do every week with bit splitting, and then at the last minute, I changed. I had even I had even booked uh, sponsors for specific. I had to drop a sponsor because they needed a specific date, and I was like, oh. Turns out I'm not doing that date. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing every week. And they're like, oh, well, we can't do it then. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, had, I, was, I was under the delusion that I was going to be able to do weekly. And it turned out I could barely do every other week. So, yeah. Well, I just hope yeah. you, you do season two soon. Cause, oh, yeah. thanks. It's good to hear that you like oh, it. Yeah. I, I, like I have it. like five podcasts in, uh, in my uh, pocket pocket cast smart playlist the ones that just get downloaded whenever there's a new episode and you are definitely one of those so oh thanks that's really nice to uh, hear all right so we did the podcast now now i'm gonna do this whole touristy question thing i do with like every foreign okay. guest i have which is you're from arlington right so i live i live in arlington yeah. yes i'm not from here well, originally, yeah but, but uh, yeah. like where you live like what's it like there? like do a tourist promo thing i don't i never know how to phrase this question <laughs> i just want yeah to get a- just try to paint try to paint a picture of yeah basically arlington yeah. so arlington is a suburb of boston it's boston is on the northeast in the northeast corner of the united states um it is a area of the united states that gets Fairly cold, cold enough to snow in the winter, uh, and pretty hot, hot enough for most of us to want some air conditioning in the summer. Up to, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I only know, I only know uh, weird Fahrenheit. Oh, let's not degrees. even go into that because that, <laughs> yeah, I just. Uh, I just... <laughs> but uh, but no, the uh, the the area where I live is uh, part of basically part of Boston. It is a suburb of Boston, so it's uh, close enough to Boston subway. We can ride subway trains around boston boston is a pretty small city in the scale of of cities um well you know well you know slovenia well you know but yeah I, <laughs> i've been there so yeah it's pretty it's pretty small i've actually visited boston for a day once so oh yeah. good okay so you know exactly what yeah. it's like uh and uh, but you know maybe of interest to your listeners is that um Boston is a very technical city. So, um, you know, we have a famous uh, – well, we're famous for a few universities. Uh, there's obviously Harvard, which is, you know, famous for all manner of disciplines. But we also have uh, MIT, which is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And those, uh, you know, most people who are familiar with techie stuff will see MIT in the news and lots of cool stuff gets invented or um, – you know, new new software techniques, new robotics, things like that, and a lot of uh, industry has grown up around Boston in part because I think of MIT being there. Um, 
you know, a lot of ideas get started at MIT and then they turn into companies that, that start in the area. Uh, and then recently a lot of, uh, Silicon Valley oriented companies like Facebook, uh, or I don't, Facebook, I don't know about Facebook, Google, uh, and, uh, other other companies uh twitter has a big office here now a lot of companies are moving into uh the boston area and making it kind of a little techie place so oh, nice. um it's nice f- yeah it's nice for a lot of folks i have two kids um it's nice for families who want to be in a city that has some big city stuff and has technique technical stuff techie stuff but also has some smaller um you know it's where I live. It's still very much a city, but it's uh, a little bit more relaxed, more parks and things like that. And the Boston Celtics, which you know, is the yes. If well, I'm not a basketball fan, nah. so you, uh, you, you, you know more about the Boston Celtics probably than I. <laughs> yeah, do. I actually bought a hoodie there, a Boston Celtics hoodie. That's the one moment oh, I took good. from Boston, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't see too many of those in Slovenia, right? Uh, well, yeah, no, I think mine's the only one. But, well, at least that one. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> right about you get that. To be, you get to be unique, unique uh, as you walk around. Yeah, town. but basketball is pretty big over here, so you know people have all manner of stuff. So, yeah. oh, okay. mine's from Good. Boston. It wasn't bought in Europe, so yeah, that, it, that's that, right. That makes it special, I guess. Very special. <laughs> all right, so let, let's move to the last part of the show, where I ask you about okay. your uh, hardware and software, the stuff you actually use. So, okay. you know, which computer and phone and tablet and stuff? Yeah. Um, well, I have a MacBook Pro that's from um, around, let's see, I guess it would be, I'm trying to figure out what year it is. Oh, it must be 2010. It's about three years old now. Um, and it's my main computer. I do everything on it. I do all of my uh, software you know, development on it. I actually usually don't even use an external monitor. I just use this 15-inch MacBook Pro. That's insane. <laughs> and... Um, I like it because I can go anywhere with it. Uh, I work from home uh, most of the time, but then sometimes I just need to get out and I go to a cafe or go to a library or something. Um, and I use uh, uh, my iPhone is an iPhone five, which is you know pretty great. Uh, of course, as we record this, it's a uh, two days after the iPhone five S yeah. yeah was announced. So I'm already a little bit envious of the uh, <laughs> of the non-existent 5s, but um, that's basically. I mean, that's my gear is mostly my iPhone and my MacBook Pro. I do have an iPad. I don't use it as much as I wish I did. Um, I haven't gotten into the habit of using it, and I haven't gotten into the habit of developing software for the iPad really yet. Um, but uh, basically, I just use that stuff. Um, okay. There's other other little stuff I use, like uh, you know, I have a scanner that uh, is very useful. I try to go paperless when I can. Uh, but mostly, that's my life: is the MacBook and my uh, and my iPhone and my uh, Rode poca- Rode Podcaster ah. microphone, which I'm speaking into right oh, now. So you went with the Rode. I'm on a Yeti. Yeah. yeah, I've heard really good things about those. Uh, I went with the Rode. Uh, Basically, because the the Yeti um, is it kind of a is it kind of a not it's not like a cylinder shape, right? Uh, no, it, no, uh, but it's also a condenser because you have a dynamic. The podcasters the dynamic uh, uh, mic, which is better uh-huh. if just one person speaks to it. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, most of my interviews in Slovenia, I do. I actually meet the person 
So oh, okay. I needed something that could, you know, capture two people basically. And the Yeti is perfect for that because oh, that's yeah, good. I couldn't yeah. do that with a dynamic mic. But yeah, and the podcast is right. great. It's a great mic. So yeah. Okay. So so uh, on the software side, okay, we'll go with Mars Edit on the Mac, obviously. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I imagine you are. Okay. So then maybe talk more about the iPhone stuff that you actually use. That's all I always stress. Not the you know flavor of the month apps, but the stuff that you actually well, use on the- yeah i guess um this is the trick for this i learned about this trick recently you go you open up your iphone and you just do the double click on the home button to see the apps that are in your um you know your multitasking bar and that tells you the things you actually use because they're in the order that you use them yeah. right so uh instacast I guess I use Instacast. <laughs> um, I use Instacast to listen to podcasts. I actually use my iPhone. Um, about a year or two ago, I switched from using an iPod um, mini, I guess. Uh, I used to run, So I run a lot. And I used to run always with my iPod mini in my pocket. And then I, I switched um, to my iPhone a year or two ago when I discovered I could get this running belt that would hold it securely enough uh, for, my, for my taste. Oh, uh, okay. So I use Instacast, um, although I'm not, I'm it's, I'm not in love with it. I I think it's and I I know a lot of people like Downcast. Um, I need to give that a try. I haven't given that a try yet, but um, Instacast is pretty good. It does the job for me, but there are some things that annoy me about it. Um, I've got Letterpress here. I still play Letterpress. You know the yeah. game by Lauren Brichter. Uh, and uh, I use Apple's own mail app. That's there. That's obvious. Um, I use for Twitter. I use Tweetbot. Uh, not not uncommon at yeah, all. I, I know. know. <laughs> I, I I used to use Twitterific quite a bit. Um, I sort of flip flop these days between Twitter clients uh, and usually between Twitterific and Tweetbot. I don't know why exactly I'm on uh, I'm on Tweetbot right now. I think I think maybe because I got used to it on the Mac, I ended up using it on the Mac, and now I'm like. Okay, it behaves almost exactly the same on the phone. Oh, okay. so. Are you on iOS 7 on your phone or have you, are you waiting for the official release? I just, I just switched to iOS 7 yesterday. Oh, so you actually so waited was, for the GM? Or? I waited for the well, – I, I, and here I have this luxury of, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, rich software engineer, so I have an extra iPhone that, <laughs> uh-huh, I, okay. yeah, that yeah. I had the iOS 7 installed on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, because like most of the people I talked to recently, they just all install like the first beta. And I'm like, what the hell are you people doing? Like, that is, no, 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 no. Yeah. I am very, I'm very paranoid about that. And I do, um, I also do though the um, Tiny Umbrella. You know that? Uh, have you heard that? No. Uh, Tiny Umbrella is a piece of software that um, you can use to save the, um, basically like the uh, the cryptographic like little bits from your phone that let you, I think it's like, it's called the SHSH and I don't know exactly what it is, but it lets you authorize to Apple the right to install a specific OS release. Uh So the long and short of it is if you download this tiny umbrella, um, you can save every time you install an update, you can save the old uh, bits so that theoretically in the future, if you need to, you could reinstall the old one. So like when I uh, install iOS 7, I, I save my 6.1.4 bits and 
Um, it's not always up to date being able to install. You know, they have software for re- restoring to the old one. Um, but the idea is that you should be able to go back. Yeah. Uh, and that gives me a little bit of comfort because by default, you can never go back. Yeah, that's and that's, that's one of the scary things about iPhones. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that's those are the main things I guess. Um, I use a. I've been a fan of this weather app called Dark Sky. Oh, yeah, the one that actually tells uh, you it's going to rain five seconds. Yes, <laughs> it's going to rain, <laughs> and it's and it's pretty reliable for me. I have found um, some people complain about it, and I thought, what's wrong with you? It's perfect. And then I travel, and I find out that they must live in a place that has <laughs> <laughs> terrible coverage or something because i have had it behave poorly in some places but most of the places i go it's great it tells you when it's going to rain and then there's a feature that even it it you know gives you a little alarm so i'll be walking down the street it'll say light rain starting soon i can look around and say okay where's where's the rain where is it coming (laughs) or or get under uh get into a building soon you know so uh that's uh that's the main stuff that's on my little recent list here. Uh, but uh, I have a ton of stuff. Uh, I use that uh, that stuff a lot. Um, but mostly, I just use my phone for uh, mail, Twitter, listening to podcasts, navigation. You know, getting you know, I, I use Google Maps ever since uh, iOS six, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and that's about it. A bunch of other little stuff, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I use I use this app called True Weight for uh, keeping my uh, my weight in check, my uh, <laughs> my, fit, my fitness. Uh, it it you can put your weight in every day, and it tells you on an average how you're doing. So you don't have to freak out if you get like five pounds heavier one day. Uh, it just keeps an average for you. So if you go up or down five pounds, it doesn't freak you out. It just says, eh, you're doing all right. Nice. <laughs> Oh, okay. So then my last question, which is also always the same. If you had to um, uh, pick one thing, the, the physical thing, it doesn't have to be a gadget, right? That made a big impact on your life, right? What would that one thing mm-hmm. be? You might still have it. You might not have it anymore. Like, it doesn't matter. Just it has to be something. It can be your grandmother, you know, like <laughs> a physical object. Like, <laughs> uh, Are you saying my grandmother is not a physical object? <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like an inanimate object. No, I know. <laughs> Um, well, you know, what's on my mind, I mentioned to you before we started the show that I had actually just been running. Um, and one of the things that's been, I'm very particular about is headphones for, (laughs) for, for podcasts. Um, and it's not just for running. I, I use headphones also, obviously, when I'm walking or taking the train, all these different things I, I listen to podcasts while I'm doing. Um, and I am old-fashioned in the sense that I like the headphones that go over your head. You know, you have, you have two little plug things that go in your ears and then a band that goes over the top of your head. It's like the original mm-hmm. okay. Sony Walkman yeah. headphones. Uh, I don't want those big puffy things like the original ones, but you know, just little little buds that go in your ears, and then the band that goes over your head. I don't like any of those strap around the back of your ear. Um, if it's just wires, then they fall out. My ears don't hold those things. Um, so there's this like problem I've been having over the years that Sony actually makes these. They they used to make these perfect headphones. 
um, that were perfect in every way except that uh, within about six months or so, inevitably, I would like snag the cord on something and snap the headphones. <laughs> so I would break them. They're perfect in every way except that they broke. Um, and then, so, but they were like, Sixteen dollars, sixteen U.S. dollars. Uh, so you could go every six months. wasn't a big deal, really, to buy another pair. Um, and they discontinued them. <laughs> they discontinued them because everybody wants to buy these ones that are like bright purple with like strap around the back of your ear and all these different contraptions, headphones that go on the back of your head and all this stuff. And I just find those irritating to me. And when I run, they don't feel good. So. Uh, it turns out they have this cheaper, they, they had this cheaper one. that's not nearly as good. I'm looking at a pair right now. It's the Sony, uh, MDR dash W zero eight. Now the nice thing about these is they're so cheap that they're impossible to break. <laughs> uh, you, you pull them and they just bend. Um, but they are not as nice as the other ones because they're so light and that they actually kind of like fall out of my ears a little bit while I'm running. However, this is the, the the closest thing to perfection that I have right now, and um, these are also, I think, dis- discontinued now. <laughs> so they're like every time I find something from Sony that is like the closest thing to perfect, they, they discontinue it. So this this last time I bought like oh, so the problem with these ones is they don't break ever, but because they're so cheap, inevitably one of the um, one of the ears stops making. Oh sound. yeah, that's yeah. I think that's a given. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, so I bought like the last time I bought these, I bought like five. So the nice one thing about these ones too is they're like nine dollars. Oh, okay. They're even cheaper. And the last time I bought them, I bought like five pair of them from Hong Kong <laughs> in like generic and generic white boxes. They were like they must have been straight from the factory. And uh, I bought them on eBay. And now I'm down to like two pair of these left. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get them even from Hong Kong next time. So I'm just, I'm running, I'm literally running on borrowed time. <laughs> and <laughs> so, but, but these thing, this is important to me. It makes a big difference to me because I think that without a headphone like this, I would not, I would not be able to listen to podcasts and I would, I don't think I would be running as much. So it is like I'm at the point now where I think if I have to, I might have to like start a Kickstarter (laughs) to to commission my own perfect headphones. The the red sweater phones, basically. The red sweater phones. (laughs) And I don't think the problem is (laughs) I don't think anybody else cares. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be getting discontinued. (laughs) So (laughs) it's going to be you and the other guys. Yes, that's right. We're going to be like, yes, finally. But I have an idea for this. This the idea is you make an interchange. I think there's some stuff out there like this, but interchangeable system where you have the headband and the little earbuds just snap onto them, and that way you know you, the headband lasts forever, and you just replace the little ear earbuds. Um, maybe ideally it would just. And I have to look. Maybe something like this exists. But if I could have my perfect um, headband. That just you snap in Apple's iPhone uh, earbuds because I always have those around <laughs> because I'm always buying a new phone and never and never using the uh, the earbuds. 
So uh, maybe that's my idea for a Kickstarter. The uh, the, the 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 head headband that lets you reuse your iPhone <laughs> earphones. Yeah, well, that 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 one has a li- like some more legs, but I'm still. It's maybe seven people instead of three. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be huge. Yeah, it's gonna yeah, it's gonna take off basically. <laughs> Yeah. Did I mention the headset will cost nine hundred dollars? <laughs> yeah, with the seven backers, they all get one basically. Right, that's right. <laughs> uh, Daniel, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, okay, yeah. great. Well, thanks for having me on uh, the show. Thanks for doing this. This has been fun. This was fun. So.